Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here. We thank you for the goodness that you bestow upon your children, your graciousness and your mercy towards us, your blessing us in so many ways, Lord, including allowing us to gather together in a free way with fellow brothers and sisters on this your day to worship you, to study your word, to offer prayers up before you, and to sing praises to your name. We pray that you bless this time that we have together right now in order to study your word, to learn more about you and your acts of redemption throughout all of history, how you are God above all, the ruler of all, and how you will judge those who come against your children and bless your children at the same time, Lord. Praise your wonderful name for this. Give glory to you for all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So last week we explored the kind of the idea of God as the divine warrior that comes to do battle on behalf of his children. We looked at that in a couple of different examples across the Old Testament and then kind of explained how the turf kind of shifts to in the New Testament to the spiritual realm instead of the physical realm. Then we also looked at the gospel according to Nahum is what I called it in verse uh, 15 of chapter 1 those who bring good news and publish peace. We talked a little bit about the good news and the peace that that describes there. But today we're going to we're going to finish up Nahum, and next week Richard is going to take over. He's going to be going through Titus. Is that right? There you go. And so today we're going to like said, finish up Nahum, and we're going to cover all of chapter 3. And I'll be the first to admit that our passage for today is a bit tough for our 21st century ears to hear and take heart of. This is because in the past few weeks, I've talked about how Nahum is mainly about judgment and giving vivid illustrations of God's wrath against the city of Nineveh. But in the previous two weeks, there's still like a few verses in there that kind of showcase some, some things other than this. We get, you know, the nature of God in chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. Wonderful description of the nature of God there. We get the restored majesty of Israel in chapter 2, verse 2. Or you get the coming, the good news and the peace that are coming to Judah in chapter 1, verse 15. Well, there's going to be none of that today. None of those, you know, positive side that we tend to think of as positive things anyway. But today is just about woe to the city and nothing else. But nevertheless, this is beneficial to us. We're going to come to the well of God's word with open hearts and minds and examine the closing of the book of Nahum. And I want you to keep in mind as we read this that we hold all of God's attributes as equally worthy and equally perfect. And none of his attributes are more important than the others. For God to be perfect, he has to possess all of his attributes in a perfect way. His grace, his mercy, his omnipotence, his infinitude, his omniscience, his immutability, his self-sufficiency, nor any of his other attributes, including his love and his wrath, can be separated from one another. So our society, even in the church, we tend to cringe a little bit when we think of God's wrath. You know, typically in our church, we don't as much because we still hear that preached. But in most churches, you never hear that preached of God's wrath. We want to focus on love and mercy all the time. What we, you kind of fail to realize is that this, this is really the opposite of most of human history. This is the opposite. This is true in the 7th century B.C., which is Nahum's time. 
or really even in the first century AD, really you think the society really thought more about retribution. Ideas of grace and mercy were the ones that kind of made society cringe, you know, it's an eye for an eye. But we don't really need to fall into what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery here. Just because we live at a later date, we think we're more enlightened, we think love and mercy is all that's important. But our default mode is not any better than the default mode of the peoples that came in centuries past. We need to be exposed to the fullness of God, just like every society since the dawn of time. So keep that in your mind as we read Nahum chapter 3. Nahum chapter 3. <coughs> Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betray nations with their whorings and peoples with their charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make the nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame, and I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes? They sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart of sea, and water her wall. Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed into pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increase your merchants more than the stars of heaven, and the locust spread its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences. In a day of cold, when the sun rises, they fly away, and no one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. It can be tough to listen to, but keep in mind the whole, worth of God, the whole word of God is beneficial to us, and it's worthy to examine it. So let's go a little bit deeper on the details of the chapter. The first four verses here form sort of a miniature chiasm. Chiasm's everywhere, right? So the first four verses there, verses 1 and 4, detail the reasons for the overthrow of the city. She's a liar. The city's a thief. She's ruthless, has no compassion on her conquered lands. She treats the inhabitants of those lands like prey. 
Then in verse 4, the city, much like the city of Babylon of Revelation, is called a prostitute. She has enticed the subjugated nations into her whorings. Come with me. We will enjoy the pleasures of our gods. Worship our kings. You will enjoy countless pleasures too, you subjugated peoples. But her mouth is a deadly poison. Then in the middle of this chiasm, we get one of the most dramatic battle scenes in all of the Bible. I'm going to read this again because listen to really the intense cadence here and how it kind of builds to a crescendo at the end of all the dead bodies. Verses 2 and 3. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse, bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. In verse 5 through 7, the Lord taunts Nineveh again. Remember chapter, back in chapter 2, we have the Lord taunting Nineveh. And here again in verses 5 through 7, taunts him again, threatening her with deep humiliation, exposing her nakedness, throwing filth at her. This is also she will be ridiculed by the nations. And then we get a rhetorical question in verse 8. Are you better than Thebes? Thebes was an Egyptian stronghold city that was considered the most indestructible city of the time. If you remember a couple weeks ago, how in Ezekiel chapter, I don't remember what it was, 29, 30, 31, somewhere around there, talks about the destruction of Egypt and specifically talks about the destruction of Thebes. Same thing, same thing here. This was an Egyptian city, most indestructible city of the time, pretty much worldwide considered that. It had really strong walls. It was surrounded by the Nile, completely surrounded by the Nile, so they had a natural moat. It had the military support of all the nations around it, so Ethiopia below it, Libya to its west, all of Egypt around it, and they fell. God used Assyria herself to overthrow Thebes, so the king of Assyria, the king of Nineveh, Nineveh, Assyria, all of them would have realized Thebes was very strong, but we're the ones that actually overthrew them. The city of Nineveh is much weaker than the city of Thebes is, as far as defenses and military even. So the Assyrians would know firsthand that Nineveh was no match for the hand of God. Then we get a few metaphors in verses 11 through 13 for how easily Nineveh will be overthrown. They will stagger. The fortress is going to shake as easily as ripe fig trees whose fruit falls to the ground at the lightest shake. Their troops are going to go to battle like women, becoming ineffective warriors. Verses 14 and 15 invite the city to try and prepare. Go ahead and try. It's going to be useless. After this, the great merchants of the city, the princes of the city, and the people are going to scatter like scared insects in the sun. And those who care after the city won't even be paying attention. The shepherds and the princes. And then the ending. God is going to strike a fatal wound to the city of Nineveh and the nation of Assyria. And all of the surrounding nations are going to cheer to destruction. For everyone has been terribly affected by their violence. So we talked about this a little bit in the, both of the first two ones. Assyria was completely destroyed never again to rise. Nineveh now is just basically a museum. All the other great cities founded in the beginning of Genesis, a lot of those are still around. Damascus, Jerusalem, Hebron, all of those. Nineveh is no more. Every word of the Lord came true. 
And so we look at this and we see this is a, a chapter that deals completely with the wrath of God and we might not like it, but we're here to deal with it. And so I'm going to go a bit of a diversion here, but one of my guilty pleasures is the 90s TV show Frasier. Anybody ever watch Frasier? Okay, I really like the TV show Frasier. There is a, a particular exchange from season 10, episode 9, that encapsulates quite a few errors that people can fall into when thinking about God. In this episode, Frazier makes a, a deal with God. The details aren't important in this deal. And he asks his God to bring his brother Niles out of open heart surgery. And then we get this exchange with Frazier and his friend Roz. Frazier. Roz, I can't eat. I can't sleep. I just lie awake in bed at night, mentally arguing with Niles, and I win every time. Roz, Frazier, this is insane. Do you really think something's gonna bad ha something bad is going to happen if you break your deal with God? Frazier, oh, of course not. Well, maybe a little. I don't know, Roz. My brother could have died. I can't be ungrateful to whatever higher power may have spared him. Roz, I just can't imagine that God would be upset. Frazier, Oh, he's God, Roz. Have you read the Old Testament? He can be ruthless. So, two heresies here. One implicit and one explicit. First, the implied heresy of Marcionism. This is a bit of a tangent, but we're here, so we're going to deal with it. The implied heresy of Marcionism. This heresy essentially says that the benevolent God of the New Testament and the malevolent God of the Old Testament can't be the same God. This is a heresy for reasons that I hope are obvious to anyone here. But if you've got detailed questions about that, please ask me or Pastor Thomas or really anyone. There, should, there shouldn't be any confusion on that. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. But implications of this can even linger into our day because a lot of preachers and teachers want to shy away from passages like this. Passages like Nahum chapter 3, which can be tough. And we shouldn't do this. The whole of Scripture bears witness to one unchangeable one perfect God who is fully revealed in Christ Jesus. Now, one thing that is incredibly helpful to think through these things is covenant theology. That's not the topic for today. That's not the topic for even this teaching series. We could spend a whole time on that. John, there's your next topic, covenant theology. It connects all the dots from Old Testament to New Testament. It's viewing God's attributes as one unified whole that don't contradict each other. It's very helpful with this. We don't have time to go into, into those details today, but like I said, we can do that at a later time. But back to the, the other thing that's the explicit heresy and that kind of exchange between Fraser and Roz. Fraser calls God ruthless. Here's a definition of ruthless. Showing no pity or compassion, merciless, cruel. Nothing could be further from the truth about God. God is full of compassion, showing mercy countless times. And one would be tempted after reading this chapter to conclude that God might show some ruthless characteristics. After all, God says he's going to pull up the skirt over the city of Nineveh, exposing her nakedness and throw filth at her. But remember, this is only if you read this out of the context of the rest of the Bible and the rest of world history. So remember previously that Jonah preaches about the destruction of Nineveh. Nineveh repents of their violence and their evil, and God does not destroy them. And this is the pattern of God's behavior throughout all of Scripture. God always gives the people and the nations opportunities to repent. The opportunity was given to Pharaoh during the time of Moses. 
The opportunity was given to Israel during the time of the judges in which there was this perpetual pattern of sin and repentance and God saving them and relenting from his disaster. The opportunity to repent was given to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. You know, he gets, he's kind of the stereotypical evil king of the northern kingdom. But the first thing that goes, whenever he gets commissioned and anointed to be the king, the anointer, I don't remember who it is now, the anointer tells them, Jeroboam, you have the chance to repent and turn the northern kingdom away from their evilness. Jeroboam obviously does not do this. The opportunity, the same thing is given to Jehu. Now, by the time Jehu becomes king in the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom is on a horrible path. And Jehu comes in and he slaughters the whole house of Omri, including Ahab and Jezebel and their sons and their grandsons. But the specific commission given to Jehu says, Jehu, if you turn from your evil and you turn the northern kingdom away from their evil, you will save them and God will not destroy them. Well, that obviously didn't happen, and God eventually brings the Assyrians in to destroy the northern kingdom. The same opportunity is given to each king of both Israel and Judah to turn from their evil. And this is the pattern throughout the entirety of Scripture. It's given through any nation that God threatens to destroy. Repent, turn from your evil, and you will be saved. So God is not ruthless. The same opportunity is continually announced by all the prophets. Turn from your evil and you will be spared. God is not ruthless. He's long-suffering. He is incredibly patient. But he is also holy. And being holy, he must punish evil. So all of the nations that refused to turn from their evil were overthrown. Egypt, Midian, Canaan, Philistia, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Syria, Tyre, Sidon, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and yes, even eventually Israel and Judah. The message was always the same. Repent, turn from your evil, or you will be destroyed. But like I said last week, the turf has changed in the New Testament era, era though. We have gone from the physical turf of the pre-Messianic era to the spiritual turf of the Messianic era. So now the message is, repent, turn from your evil ways, or your soul will be cast into utter darkness, where the fire is never quenched and the worm does not die. But God, without a doubt, is not ruthless. He is slow to anger. Look back at chapter 1, verse 3 of Nahum. It says this explicitly. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So that is a ex very explicit truth about God. Slow to anger, great in power, no means clear the guilty. So we talked about no means clearing the guilty. Now a little bit about God's being God being slow to anger and great in power. And this is a, a wonderful little passage from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening whenever he comments on Nahum chapter 1 verse 3. And we'll read the whole thing. So Nahum 1 verse 3. Jehovah is slow to anger. When mercy cometh into the world, she driveth winged steeds. The axles of her chariot wheels are red hot with speed. But when wrath goeth forth, it toileth on with tardy footsteps. For God taketh no pleasure in the sinner's death. God's rod of mercy is ever in his hands outstretched. His sword of justice is in its scabbard, held down by that pierced hand of love which bled for the sins of men. The Lord is slow to anger because he is great in power. He's truly great. He is truly great in power who hath power over himself. 
When God's power doth restrain himself, then it is power indeed. The power that binds omnipotence is omnipotence surpassed. A man who has a strong mind can bear to be insulted long and only resents the wrong when a sense of right demands his actions. The weak mind is irritated at but a little. The strong mind bears it like a rock which moveth not, though a thousand breakers dash upon it and cast their pitiful malice and spray upon its summit. God marketh his enemies, and yet he bestirs not himself, but holdeth in his anger. If he were less divine than he is, he would long air and have sent forth the whole of his thunders and emptied the magazines of heaven. He would long air and having blasted the earth with the wonderful fires of its lower regions, and man would have been utterly destroyed. But the greatness of his power brings us mercy. Dear reader, what is your state this evening? Can you by humble faith look to Jesus and say, My substitute, thou art my rock, my trust. Then, beloved, be not afraid of God's power. For by faith you have fled to Christ for refuge. The power of God need no more terrify you than the shield and sword of the warrior who terrify those whom he loves. Rather rejoice <clears throat> that he who is great in power is your father and your friend. So Spurgeon brings out something that I had never really kind of thought about here, never really considered. God's power and his self-control are the foundation of his slow to angerness. If you think about that, a quick-tempered man is a, is a weak man. He gets, you know, he, one minor infraction and flies off the handle. God is not like this. God is not weak. He is not quick-tempered. He is long-suffering. He's very patient. <coughs> but at the same time, God cannot excuse evil. This is because God has to uphold his holiness. Like Isaiah saw firsthand, God cannot be in the presence of even uncleanness much less evil. And this is where our hope and our good news lie. We have been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And we are able to come into communion with our God. And during this week when we are focused intensely on things to be thankful for, I can't think of anything else that's more important to be thankful for than this, that we are able to commune with our God because we have been purified by the blood of Jesus and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to return back to Nahum real quick. I'm going to wrap up a little bit early today. That'll be fun. So the last verse of Nahum. Turn with me to Nahum 3.19. Notice that the book ends with a question. The very last phrase of the last verse. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? There's only one other book of the Bible that ends in a question. Anyone want to tell me what it is? Jonah. It's the only other book of the Bible that ends with a question. Jonah. So, Jonah 4.11. Back over there real quick. Jonah 4.11. The whole verse is the, is the question. So, And this is God speaking, remember? God speaking to, to Jonah. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And now we're going to tie up very nicely exactly what we've been saying for 12 weeks now. God's judgment and his mercy are complementary in his nature. They are not opposing to each other. They work hand in hand. So I'm going to quote Palmer Robertson again here from his commentary on the book of Nahum. Just one, one paragraph here. 
It says, in the 8th century B.C., Jonah was commissioned to proclaim a message that would eventuate in the salvation of the city of Nineveh, including its king, despite their great sin. Coming approximately 100 years later after Jonah, the message of Nahum in the mid-7th century provides a framework of integrity for God's offer of mercy. So Nahum provides a framework of integrity for God's offer of mercy. The unrepentant ultimately shall be judged. The utter destruction of the city of Nineveh in 612 B.C. confirms the validity of Nahum's words spoken around 30 or 40 years earlier. He was indeed a prophet of God according to the criterion established by Moses. The truthfulness of his prophecy means that in principle, each successive world kingdom, its king, its officials, and its citizens must, must take heed for the message of judgment of Nineveh applies to all kingdoms of the world which have risen up against God since the destruction of Assyria and which will continue to do so at the end of the world. So the questions themselves at the end of the respective books are even complementary here. So to quote one of my study Bibles, Jonah ended by asking, by God asking, how can he not spare repentant Nineveh? Jonah ended by asking, how can he not, God asking, how can he not spare repentant Nineveh? Nahum's question is essentially, how can God not judge wicked Nineveh? In his mercy, God receives those who come to him in faith and repentance. God in his justice must judge the unrepentant. It's eternally better to experience God's grace and mercy than to be sentenced according to his judgment. God's judgment was placed on the back of Jesus so that you and I can experience his mercy. If God has worked the miracle of salvation in your life, thankfulness, unending gratitude, complete devotion, and worship is the only proper response. And that is why we are here today to worship our Creator and our Savior. So let's prepare to go worship our God today. Um, we do need to move some tables, but we even before then, we have a few extra minutes for any questions or discussion or anything. Has anybody got, got any, any questions or anything you'd like to bring up? Or? Between Jonah, Jonah and Nahum. About 100 years. Jonah's, Jonah's when the events of Jonah are pretty firmly established as 752 B.C., Nahum's a little bit more more broad. You can't really pin it down that, that well. Most people agree it's around 640 or 650 B.C. And then Nineveh falls in 612. So, yeah, about 100 years between Jonah and Nahum and then about 30 or 40 between Nahum's prophecy and when Nineveh falls. John, you close in prayer.